Open your Bibles if you would. And let's do a little marketing survey here while we're at it. How many of you have real Bibles with you? Lift them up. All right. Oh, my. Okay, now how many of you have digital, depend on digital Bibles? Don't, oh, man. And there you go. Now you know. Well, open whichever kind of Bible you have to the book of Jude. It's the second to last book in the New Testament. It's kind of the foyer book to the book of Revelation. I think, I think that Jude is like a, a trailer for the book of Revelation, a movie trailer. And it's, it's an exciting book, 25 short verses, and open there as we pray together. Lord, open our hearts and our minds and our faculties as we open your word. Help us to look deep into it, Lord, to drill down, to be open to it, and to learn and apply from it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a story from Portland, Oregon, where the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church had one of their large meetings uh, last month. And they opened the General Assembly with the following prayer. Allah, bless us and bless our families and bless our Lord. Lead us on the straight path, the path of all prophets, of Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad, the Presbyterian Church. I can guarantee you they didn't start out that way when the denomination began many, many years ago. But they are sliding into a death spiral of apostasy. Apostasy means an outright rejection of all things truly divine. Title of our series we'll be doing the next few times together is Slaying Dragons, Slaying Dragons. And tonight we're going to be slaying the dragon, the the being all, all capital, slaying the dragon. Because behind all of this apostasy is the great dragon. In Revelation 12, 9, it says the great dragon was thrown out. I find it curious that Satan is introduced in, in Genesis as a snake, as a serpent, but he's a great dragon in the book of Revelation. Jesus said, I beheld Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Now that had to be some kind of a moment, don't you think? As you approach any time of Bible study, I think you need to realize there's, it's not a monologue. I am not here to entertain you. It's not my responsibility uh, to in fully engage you. This is not just a speech or a, or a talk or a lecture. There's a responsibility on the part of the audience for a dialogue. And uh, I think many people miss the opportunity to drill down deep in God's word because they come and sit down and say, teach me. Now teach me. And, and you, you hear, I've heard it said from people, well, I just don't get fed anymore there. And I would submit to you the responsibility is twofold. Granted, uh, the, the speaker has a, a deep burden to get his butt in the chair for hours and hours each week and to study to show himself thoroughly approved. But there's also a responsibility on the part of the audience uh, to, to, to be proactive, to be interactive. And if, in fact, there is a boring speaker, present company excluded, um, <laughs> there is still an opportunity every time you open up the Word of God for you to maybe work a little bit harder. Maybe you have to do 70% 70, 70 of the labor. And I, I'm going to give you some tools tonight 
for things you can use to increase and enhance your personal Bible study, whether it's uh, alone with a cup of coffee in the morning or it's in a corporate setting like this, that you can make it, it productive and fruitful uh, regardless of the level of communication of the speaker. Because uh, we need to approach uh, Jude and realize anytime we come in, in, in contact with this book, it's a living Bible. It's a, li it's a living word. And uh, we are, have to cross bridges when we do that. Uh, we cross bridges of time. Not now some thousands and thousands of years. We cross bridges of language, that's certain. Because it was written in Aramaic and in Greek and in Hebrew. We cross bridges of custom, of culture, of history, and of geography. The writers take certain things for granted that we don't. We have no idea what they're talking about, the feasts and, and, and how, they, how they viewed certain things. So we have to be careful to cross those bridges if we're to have maximum impact from opening up God's Word. There are three phases of, of good, solid, inductive uh, Bible study. Observation, interpretation, and application. Observation, first of all, just you begin to ask yourself questions. This is what you can do when you're sitting there in a Bible study. Begin asking yourself questions because your mind moves faster than my mouth. And so if you can fall into that grand canyon of the chasm of attention to what I'm saying and what your mind is capable of multitasking and thinking. And, and so you have, to, um, you have to engage your faculties if you're going to maximize and, and not end up dozing off. Who, who is this text written to? Uh, for example, if you don't realize and you're studying the book of Hebrews, it's written to, duh, the Jews. It's the book of Hebrews. But if you just dive into it as a Gentile, you're going to miss out. You have to wrap your mind around the fact that it was written to the Hebrew race. Now in Jude, we, we know from uh, our, our first couple of verses here, that it was written to the whole church. Because Jesus says, it's written to you with a common salvation. So that's a tip-off. See, that, that lets you know it's, it's written to the whole church, not a, not a specialty group like Corinthians who were carnal. It was written to a, a select group of people. Uh, when was it written? When was the book written? This was written in roughly 70 AD. So if I may use the term for the church, the honeymoon was over. Uh, they, they were 30, 35 years, maybe, we're not sure exactly when it was written, past the death of Jesus. And they realized now, maybe he's not coming right back, you see. And so now we're second generation, people who are getting Jude's letter. They, maybe some had never, never seen Jesus, never had a, a first-hand interaction, even with somebody. There were people who are now passing away, and we're now to a second generation of the church, and problems were beginning to creep in. And so you realize, wow, when did, when did this happen? Um, and they also had a different kind of relationship uh, with, with the, the, the church because the Bible was beginning to be written. Where in the first generation, they didn't have but the Old Testament and then oral tradition about what Jesus had done. Why was it written? Why was this book written? John, uh, 1 John 2, 12 says, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Very often the Bible tell you, tells you why this book was written, for what purpose. Jude tells us in verse 3, it was needful that I write to you because of spiritual danger. Certain men had crept in unawares with, with frightful, hateful doctrines. And then you ask yourself, where did it happen? Where in the Middle East? Where, where, where did it take place? Was it in Egypt? Was it in Rome? Was it, you have to understand the, the basic uh, facts ab about New Testament ge geography and Old Testament geography. For example, in verse 7, it begins to speak about Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And you need to have an understanding of where that was. We had the opportunity, my wife and I, to, to go to an archaeological dig of Sodom and Gomorrah. One of the, one of the theories about it is, is near, near Mount Nebo, the last place that Moses set his physical foot on before he, was, he, was, um, it was, he, before he died. And so that, that overlooks the Jordan Valley, overlooks the Jordan River, overlooks uh, Judea, and in fact, the city of, of Jerusalem. Moses could see that. Now, further, and we have a map of Israel to put up here right now, Sodom and Gomorrah is on the banks of the Dead Sea. And you see there are two basic inland freshwater pockets uh, in Israel. The upper one just below Syria and Lebanon is the Sea of Galilee. It's a freshwater lake about 10 miles wide and 40 miles long, and it has 53 different varieties of fish. It's gorgeous. A lot of resorts around there. That's where Jesus, uh, Capernaum and the rest is over on the, on the left shore, the uh, western shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's where he spent most of his time. It's gorgeous up there, very, very tropical. Down below you see the Dead Sea. Now, the tributaries that form the Sea of Galilee come out of the, the Golan Heights, and there are three different uh, tributaries, and that's where Jesus asked Peter the question, who do men say that I am? And they were, it, it's a very powerful place. But then the, um, the Jordan River flows out of the Sea of Galilee. So that's a very vibrant area. It waters the whole uh, Jezreel Valley and a lot of fruit production up there. But the thing that's about the, uh, the Dead Sea is that although the Jordan River flows into it, guess what? Nothing flows out of it. Nothing. And if you ever go there, they, it's called the Dead Sea for a reason, because it'd be dead. And there's nothing alive in there. You, and if you go on a tourist ship, you want to float in it just one time. And before you go, do not shave. Do not, because you, you'll regret it, believe me. Uh, because it is, it is incredibly salty. But there's a huge spiritual principle. What it is, obviously, that all the fresh water can flow into your life. But if there's not outflow, you become <gasps> dead. So the spiritual lesson's right there, and that's where Sodom and Gomorrah is, or shall we say, was. And so and so that, that's the kind of thing you should, be, you should have the Bible map understood. And if you can ever take a trip to Israel, it's just priceless. So it helps you really understand. And then, of course, you ask yourself, who is involved in the story? In our case tonight, uh, Jude is writing about apostates, which means people who have rejected all things divine. And of course, Jude, you also want to ask yourself not only who is involved in the story, but what? Who wrote the book? And get yourself into the head of the writer. Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. He's the half-brother. He's, he's, he's the uh, brother of, uh, of James, who wrote the book of James. And now, in, in, earlier in the New Testament, he was called Judas, but after the transgression of the other Judas, no one wanted to be called Judas. I mean... No one names their kids, you know, Judas. No one names their dog Judas. I have known a few cats that could have been named, should have been named Judas, but, but uh, no, no one uses Adolf, you know, or Lu here's my son Lucifer. You don't hear that name too often either. So thus he changed his name from Judas to Jude. So he wrote that story. And he's writing to the general church, as we have already said. Now, these observations give us a solid platform to be just, just now we're ready to begin Bible study. You see, you should be asking yourself these kind of questions constantly when you're opening up Scripture. It'll begin to open up your faculties. It'll, it'll broaden your understanding, give you that base, that platform of understanding. Now we're ready to go. Now we can launch into our Bible study, and that leads us from observation to interpretation. 
We, we observe the basic fundamentals about, about the text, and this helps us from getting weird, getting wacko. And if half the people on Christian TV would just do these three simple things, I'd be a lot happier. So, observation, interpretation. And how often have you heard someone say to you, oh, well, that's your interpretation of the Bible. I've got, that, that's many, but Peter says, no, Peter slam dunks that by saying in 2 Peter verse 20, uh, verse, chapter 1, verse 20, knowing this first, no interpretation of Scripture is what? Of any private interpretation. So we don't get to have our own little personal garden of the Bible. There is a right interpretation of the Bible, and there are ways to get there. And we need to learn them and trod those paths constantly. No private interpretation. And some people get um, uh, two out of three. There's observation, interpretation. Number three is application. Because interpretation is just the ob. And look, people, when, when you're God, God put the cookies on, on the low shelf for us. The fruit is, on, is low hanging in the Bible. We don't have to get all into higher criticism. We don't have to really become theological geniuses. Most often, the simplest interpretation of Scripture is the right one. Okay? Now, there is poetic language, you know, Jesus is not a lion, okay? He's not a door. There are things, obviously, that are given there for metaphors and analogies and whatnot. But, but, but God doesn't ex expect you to have to pound your head against the desk to figure out what he wants you to do. That's not to say there aren't mysteries. Paul acknowledged that. He said, the mystery of lawlessness. Uh, there, there, there are mysteries of iniquity. There are mysteries we find in the Bible. We'll find a couple today in our text. But interpretation, observation, and then application. What is, so it's, it, it distills down to this. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible mean? How does the Bible apply? Those three things should be, should be your best friends. What does the Bible say? What does it mean? Now what do we do about it? And, and every, every time you open Scripture, you should be, be uh, going down those hallways. What does it say? What does it mean? How does it apply? Some people get two out of three. They're really good at observation. They're great at interpreting and getting the Greek and the original languages, and they get the commentaries, and, they, they get, and, they, and then they walk away. Well, what good is that? You know, that, That's like going to practice in sports, going to practice and never playing the game. And that's what, what I think too many Christians do. They think just coming to church, you know, it's like, it's like being a weekend warrior. Do you know where most, you know where most um, um, injuries happen in sports in America? Softball. That's not something a very violent sport. There's no contact. You're not hitting no pads, whatnot. You know why? Because people play it once or twice a month or once a year. And they get out there and they go, oh, yeah. And they're running and they're sliding in the second base and, and twisting their ankle or whatnot. Same thing is true of Christians. If you're only a weekend warrior as a Christian, if all you're doing is playing with visiting God once or twice a month, you're going to be injured spiritually. You're going to get bruised. You'll be getting bruised easily. You know? And it's not the responsibility of the pastor to always make you feel good. In fact, if you are always feeling good with what I say, I have not done my job. That's not a balanced view of Scripture. It's to, it's to exhort, it's to reprove, it's to correct with doctrine and all godliness. You see? And so if you're only, only checking in when it's comfortable for you, you're like in the National Guard. A Christian, you need that's just on duty once in a while, and you'll you'll show up. You know, you need you need to be fully engaged in the all volunteer army, all in or all out. You see, and so observation, interpretation, application. That's what we want to do.
We get there and God will speak to us and show us things. So in application, you want to always, there's three guidelines. And we're really going to have a Bible study here eventually. Trust me. But <laughs> what is the context? Compare scripture with scripture. And what's the call to action? What is the con context, context, context? Uh, because you, have, you can't just parachute into scripture indiscriminately. I think some people do that and find a scripture they like and land on it and never find out the whole context even of the passage, of the chapter, of the book, or in the whole landscape and panorama of scripture. That's context. And then comparison. Uh, 1 Corinthians says, compare scripture with scripture, spiritual with spiritual, rightly dividing the word of truth. You know the best commentary in the Bible? I'll tell you where to get it right now. Uh, it's, it's the absolute best commentary. It's the Bible. The Bible interprets itself. Compare spiritual with spiritual. What, what does the Old Testament say? What did Jesus say about this? What did the apostles say about this? You compare scripture with scripture. Now, today, we're just so lucky, it's not lucky, but fortunate. As I was uh, new in the ministry, there was this book that John MacArthur told me to get called The Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. It's in like five-point font but it has every scripture in the Bible cross-referenced dozens of times. It's pr it is priceless. And it, it, it drove my Bible studies for many years. Well, now with the advent of computer technology, you can get Blue Letter Bible or Logos or whatever, PC Study Bible, and do it like this. I can do it on my phone and, and get a dozen cross-references. There's no excuse for preaching out of context, none whatsoever. You see, that's a huge, constant mistake, finding something and then just landing on that scripture and then making a doctrine out of that as an island. You need to have the whole continent of, of God's word. Um, and so what do the words mean? What do the grammar show? What are, does it balance with other, other scriptures? This is exciting. This is how you get to the, to the heart, to the meat. This is why Paul said, put away the milk. Time for the meat. Get, get, get serious. Grow up in God's word. Don't depend on, you have no need, the Bible says, that any man teach you anymore. Okay? We can lead you and inspire you and encourage you and, and, and share our journey with you, but it's your individual responsibility to become a workman, a, stu a studious workman of, of, God's, of God's word. That'll change you. It'll change your family. It'll change our community. It'll change our church. So the Bible can change, this, this, listen, this application can change your church experience dramatically. If you come in here, instead of just setting back, you lean in. Instead of saying, okay, tell me stuff, you, you're here with a notebook, or you're here with your PDA, or you're here with a computer, and you're digging in, and you're challenging. You just don't take it face value with somebody says, that's how leaders get off, the, off track. That's how all these weird, wacky things happen, because the church just goes along with some charismatic personality without checking for themselves and not being noble enough to dig into God's Word and say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Now, I hear some, re I hear some really good teachers. We'll, we'll hear some really good teachers, and I'll go, oh, wait, just, I don't think that's precisely how it is in Scripture. You see, and I'll call anybody. I don't care how, uh, how esteemed they may be. So that's how you should be. The, you, the Bereans went home to, to see if these things were so in Scripture. They just didn't say, oh, well, the pastor said. Well, we aren't speaking ex-cathedra here. You know, that, that ended quite, quite a long time ago. So that's what you need to do. It will change your Christian experience. So context, comparison, call to action. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say? 
See, why do you listen but not act? Your, your, your lips honor me, but your heart is far from me. That's a call to action. The Lord said, do the things I have said. Re return to your first love, do the first works, and, and, and then I'll begin to take you on further in your journey. So that's the call to action. Context, comparison, call to action. Apostasy, we find in our text tonight, in history, in personalities, and in prophecy. In history, we find it threefold. We find it in uh, the, uh, the angels that, that kept not their first estate. And, and they, they were the ones that, that in the backstory of Satan who went along, one third of the angels chose to rebel. And that's a great mystery. And, and right now, we don't have a complete handle on that. We know that it did happen. Certain eternal destruction awaits apostate, false teachers who are marked by lust, rebellion, and irreverence. Now, you have the Acts of the Apostles as, as the, the fifth book in the New Testament. The book of Jude is the Acts of the Apostates. That's what we find here. These are spiritual terrorists. These are people who come into the church not to learn, but, but to create lewd behavior. Now listen, if, you're an, if you are not a committed, converted Christian tonight, I want to say to you, welcome. We, we exist for you. We're here. You can come as often as you like. You can ask us as many questions as you like. We, we hope you'll keep coming back and keep coming back, and God will soften your heart, even tonight, that you might, might choose to say, I don't want to be vulnerable to my soul being lost for eternity. I want to accept the promises of Jesus Christ. I hope that will happen to you tonight. But if it doesn't, come back. And, and, and if you're of a different view about sexual orientation or about the social issues that are such hot buttons today, please come back. One of my favorite books in my library is, is a Sinners in the Hands of an Angry Church. And it warns us about antagonizing our mission field, about attacking those we're supposed to be entreating. And, and so we don't want to, they shouldn't fear the church. They shouldn't, they, they can see us as enemies, we cannot see them as enemies. Because they are not our enemy, you see? And so uh, we need to realize that, that the church, it, it should be a, a wide-casted net, Jesus said, and bring them in, br bring them all in, bring them and sort them out. However, however, the acts of the apostates we talk about here, those, these people weren't coming in for honest reasons. They, they weren't coming in for, for rational examination of Scripture, for dialogue. They were here to divide. They were here to lead astray. They were here to draw men after their own selves. And that's we won't tolerate. Uh, there are young men who come because there are hot chicks in the Christian church and just cruise for the women. And that's not acceptable. We, that's why we have sheepdogs here with sharp teeth, because we don't put up with that. We, we protect our, our sisters. And, and th that's our, our, that's right. <laughs> There's a big dog right over there. They turned grace, verse 4, look at grace four, uh, verse 4 with me. They turned grace into lewdness. And that's what happens. They, they take the grace of God and take sexual permission with it. And that's, that's unacceptable. So we have the evil triad in history, verse 5, 6, and 7. The reprobates of Israel, the refugees from Egypt, uh, the angels I spoke about who left their first estate, and Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, you might think Sodom and Gomorrah to be a harsh thing that fire and brimstone coming down from heaven. But let me, this is where digging deep come, comes in. 
You, you might want to know that Sodom and Gomorrah probably knew the truth. Sodom and Gomorrah, when they were destroyed, was only 450 years from the, from the flood. They were, Shem and Noah's son was still alive when Sodom and Gomorrah existed. So they had firsthand testimony about God's goodness and God's grace. And they, they had the oral tradition of, of the Garden of Eden. And yet they chose this, this lascivious behavior. And so thus the, um, the judgment, the, the overt judgment of God doesn't seem uh, quite as, as uh, strong. But it is a stern warning. Listen, passive atheism results in practical apostasy. See, if, you, if you're just today just, well, you know, I'm not sure, I just don't believe in God, that will inevitably, because you are, you, you'll never be static, you're a dynamic being, you'll be led to practical behavior that is degrading apostasy. And that fruit will eventually come forward. The three red flares are in verse 8. Look at it with me. They defile the flesh, they despise authority, and they speak evil of dignities. That means blaspheming majesty. You see, and out of, the, out of their mouth, eventually the abundance flows. Uh, finally, they'll start talking about authority because ultimately the problem unbelievers have is with the authority of God as transmitted through his human vessels. And eventually they'll start dividing the church over the authority. They'll find a reason to criticize the leadership. And, and they'll, they'll eventually just begin to infiltrate. As I say, they are spiritual terrorists. And um, verse 9 brings us a, a very interesting, one of the mysteries I, I spoke about, that um, Michael, the archangel, contended with Satan over the body of Moses. Now, what is up with that? As I say, that was near Mount Nebo uh, in Jordan, where Moses died, because he wasn't allowed to cross the Jordan due to his disobedience. And after he died, apparently, there was a wrestling match over his body between Satan and Michael. And uh, all I can tell you is, why would, why would that be? Uh, one theory is that in the book of Revelation, there are two witnesses that come and, and uh, um, testify to God during the, the Great Tribulation. And some speculation are they are Elijah and Moses, because they're, they're, the miracles they do, see if these remind you of anybody, that they uh, call down fire from heaven, they restrict rain, they turn blood into water, the second, there's four, four gifts split between two men. They call down fire from heaven, they stop rain. The other one can change blood into water and bring plagues on the earth. Let me see. Who does that remind you of? Elijah and Moses. And so maybe, just maybe, Moses needed his body for this duty. You know, this is speculating here. And, and Satan's always trying to uh, frustrate God's plans. And he wanted the body of Moses that it, it wouldn't be available for duty there in the Great Tribulation. That's, that's speculation, but it's, it's interesting. Um, so there's some insight here, though. That he, listen, if, uh, if Michael wasn't bold enough to uh, rebuke Satan. He said, no, I, I won't give him a railing accusation. I say, the Lord rebuke thee. Uh, if Michael is, is, is reluctant to, to speak with Satan, who, I know a lot of Christians who speak to Satan. And they go, Satan, I rebuke thee. And they use spiritual language. They talk real loud like Satan's hard of hearing or something. And, and you know, or, they, or he's Southern or something. And they, they um, all these different things. And I think Satan's like, really? A human rebuked me. 
Well, I'll just wait till they fall asleep then. I mean, well, how do how, how you stand guard against Satan? You see, um, here, here's the, the real backstory on it. Jesus said to Peter one time, Peter, uh, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. And Peter goes, I'm all ears. What, what's next? Now, he didn't say, but you're the rock, Peter. You just tell him who you are and you rebuke him. and You stand up to him and quote scripture to him. That wasn't what Jesus said. He goes, but I have prayed for you. Because we have an intercessor. We have somebody to deal with the devil. We don't depend on our own spiritual charisma and magnetism. We, Job said, I need someone to stand between me and him. We, we, we need an intercessor. And that's what, that's what Jesus is exactly. I have prayed for you. Well, it becomes personal. We've seen the historical... It's personal, but apostasy always begin, begins personally. We have Cain, Balaam, and Korah. We haven't time to go through it, but you can read Numbers 22, Numbers 16, and know it was all about authority. Uh, Balaam was jealous. He wanted authority, so he sold his gift. Korah uh, was, was jealous of, of Moses and Aaron's authority. So he led people after himself and, and the ways of Korah. It's all about authority and people not respecting the authority. Romans 12, all authority is given by God. Okay? And that leads us to the point that misery loves company. And that's what Satan's all about. He is miserable. Satan is insane. He is spiritually insane to have done what he did. But that doesn't mean he's any less potent. But he wants to draw as many with him as he can. He can't be everywhere. He can't reproduce. So he wants to create replicates. Not duplicates, replicates of himself. That's what Cain was like. That's what Korah and Balaam and the leaders at Sodom and Gomorrah are. And you, the problems you have in your life are not with people. You have spiritual problems that are, are reflected in your relationships. And as soon as we start learning that and start, start being angry at our boss and angry at our, our family and angry at our neighbors and realizing this is a spiritual problem, okay? And your problems are not people. We see a five-fold batch of bad fruit in verses 12 through 13, how it manifests itself in the lives of people. And then when you're studying the Bible, you always look for repetition. And look in verse 15. You just read through it. It goes, ungodly this, ungodly. Four times, ungodly. We get the message. They are ungodly. They are, the, they are opposite of those who seek righteousness. And verse 16 reminds us that Jesus said to the, the uh, spiritual leaders, you are like your father, the devil. Because Satan is seeking those to follow him and to create havoc on earth and to frustrate, as I said, the plans of God. And... Um, they have this tendency to murmur, to complain, and to speak arrogantly. And you see, you see those, that those fruits begin to come out of the life of those who aren't walking with the Lord. Uh, the word murmur here is only used this one time in the entire Bible. Just to speak of people who are just, just grinding their gears of spiritual dissatisfaction. They're, they're never at peace. And they're, they have great swelling uh, storms with no water. We see shiftings of gears in verses 17 and 20 where it says, but you, where Jude draws the attention back to us, but you are different. You aren't like these. These are anti-examples of what we should not be doing. But we talked about your, the problems you have, anything you're struggling with. If you wrote down your top three problems today right now, you, you need to recognize the spiritual roots of each one. You don't have a money problem. You have a stewardship problem. You don't have a sex problem. You have a purity problem. You, 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 don't, have, you don't have a problem with uh, your work and your vocation. You have an authority problem. 
you see? And, and once you identify that, then you can begin to address it. But as long as you're, you're doing horizontal things, you're never going to solve the vertical problem. Evil people, listen, listen, evil people, ooh, the music is swelling in the background. Uh, yeah. Evil people are under evil control. Do you know Joseph Stalin went to seminary? It's true. Joseph Stalin was responsible for 30 million Russians dying. He intentionally starved millions of people and tortured and murdered and annihilated 30, 30 million people. Do you know that the, uh, uh, the population of Florida is 20 million? He, killed, he would have killed the whole state of Florida. You see, An evil person. A brutal 30-year rule, absolute dictator, atrocities, purges, expulsions, forced labor camps, all an evil person. He was under the control of the wicked one. You see? Interesting, his daughter, he died in 1953. His daughter, Silvanta, uh, immigrated to the U.S. in, I think, 1967. She had converted to Christianity. And just before he died, she had visited Malcolm Muggeridge, a Christian essayist and intellectual. And she brought with her a chilling story of Joseph Stalin's final moments on earth. He was hallucinating that wolves were chasing him. And just before he passed away, he sat straight up in bed and shook his fist at heaven and died. An evil man under evil control with an evil destiny. Now, as we wrap, um, as you go through Bible study, you always want to be looking for the big idea. There's always a, heart, a pulsing heartbeat, even in a, a chapter, sometimes in a verse, always in a book. Uh, and in the entire Bible is found in John 3.16. If you've got to find one place where the Bible beats, it's John 3.16. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And whoever believed in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. There's the gospel right there. there there's the, the crimson thread of redemption. There's what God did, why he did it, and where we're at and why we're here today. But in, in this book, it's verse 17. Because we, we, the call to action in Jude is set up in the first couple of verses, contend for the faith. Uh, it's in verse 5, remember the apostles' doctrine. But then we get to verse 17. It says to build your faith up. Build your faith up. You can face these kind of people because we can't get rid of them. The, the idea is not to weed them out of the world or even out of the church. Because Jesus said there are weeds and there are weeds. And even the angels can't really tell sometimes. And if you pull up all the weeds, you might harm some of the wheat. So let them, let them blossom. And in, when, when the threshing comes, then the fruit will come forward. But we who are in the church have to be prepared. And here's the call to action. Build yourself up in your faith. Um, look up for redemption. You see that there? Look up for the coming of Christ. If, you, what, if you're looking up, where can't you be looking? Down and being stuck in this world and being in the muck and mire. Look up because your redemption draws near. You see? That, what does that change? Your whole world view. Look up. Look up. The day is coming. Look up. It's drawing near. The times are accelerating. Prophecies are coming to pass. and There should be excitement and zeal and, 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 a, and a momentum in our life rushing towards that certain day that we might hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And then my favorite verse here, here it is right here. Keep your, look at, look at it with me. Keep yourself in the love of God. What a fabulous verse. What does it not say? It doesn't say keep loving God. 
No, keep yourself in the love of God. Because he loves you. It's not your responsibility. It's a, it's a proactive, responsive love. It's agape love. He gives it to you no matter what. But keep yourself. If you look at a map of the developing United States back in the 1800s, you'll notice that all the communities, all the metropolises are where? By bodies of water. There's, there's New York, and there's LA, and there's Minneapolis, and New Orleans, and there's St. Louis. Why? By the Mississippi, and Chicago, by, the, by the Lake Michigan. They planted by the water. Learn from that. Plant your life by the water. Don't just visit the living water. Just don't import it once or twice a week. Live by it. Splash it. Let it flow through your life. You see? That's, that, that's where you'll find the growth. That's where you'll find the security and the safety. Live by the water. Live by the water. See, they, they didn't start and build Las Vegas first. You know, it was way down the road. And some of us do that. We want to be amused all the time. And we want to live in a spiritual Las Vegas and then go visit the living water once in, a, once in a while. It won't work. It just won't work. Well, and then pray. Pray in the Holy Spirit in verse 20. That's, that's, that's the call to action. Uh, contend, remember, build, keep, look, pray. That's the call to action. Now, if you, if you consume yourself with that, guess what you won't be doing? Ungodly things. If, if, if your conscious hours are consumed by, you know what, I'm going to contend for the faith. I'm going to remember the apostles' doctrine. I'm going to build up myself. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to pray in the Holy Spirit. I'm going to keep, where's the love of God today? Where do I go to be under that, under that living water? If you're doing that, there just won't be discretionary time to do things that are, are counterproductive and hurtful to you. Well, here are a few take-home truths, and I'll move as swiftly as I can. Uh, if you're like me, we have a, a, a Terminex uh, comes to our house. This, they put the, the barrier around our, our home to, to kill all the, the insects and whatnot. And I'm sitting, I, I, I sit in the lanai in the morning, drink coffee, and, and I'll watch this cockroach come rolling in on the, on the uh, concrete, you know, all, all happy and everything. And then sure enough, he hits that barrier, you know. And he go, gets, goes all on the fritz before long. Oh, and I'm not helping them. I love animals, but see ya. You need to install a spiritual barrier around your life. So that when these errors, when these false doctrines, when these apostasies, when, when things come into your life, they don't even make it. When people come to, if anybody came to me with uh, most of the, the weird, wild doctrines, they wouldn't even get in my front door. It's, just not, not, it's impossible. It's inconceivable. Uh, it's uncrossable. You need to have that in your life. Because things are going to get darker and darker. As you talk about the Presbyterian Church, you think that, that Orthodox Christianity is not going to be under tremendous pressure as time goes on. You need to be prepared with you and your family and install that moat that no one gets across it. Okay, this is not just a witch, witch hunt. Just you can identify apostates and all the dramatic things about, uh, about the backstory of Satan and whatnot. Now, terrorists want to do what? Maximum damage. They want to do collateral damage in, in our lives. And that's what, that's what is, these, these apostates seek to do. They want to take people with them. And so, if, if you're a Christian, you are, you're not vulnerable to losing your salvation. But you can lose your testimony. You can lose your legacy. You can be amputated from your future. You see, and Hebrews says, listen to this, see to it, listen very carefully, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble because that 
defiles many. And guess who wants to plant bitter roots in your heart? These apostates, these people who defile and divide. See, and, and that, they cause that division and they, 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 they bring people after them and they defile the hearts of many. You see, compare and contrast. Jesus, the great shepherd, seeking, saving, loving, compassionate. Satan personified in Nimrod. In the book of Genesis, it says, Nimrod was a hunter of men's souls. And they're out there today. They may be in here today, but you can have that barrier where they'll just be repelled, you see? And we need to be strong and sturdy and steadfast. Two final questions. Where are you at today on your journey? It's, that's, the Corinthians says all the Old Testament things were given to us for an example. So the Old Testament shouldn't just be boring history to you. He says all these things were given for an example. And the pivotal thing was the Red Sea experience. Brought out of the bondage of, 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 of uh, sinful slavery, brought into the desert for an 11-day journey, and took them 40 years. Okay? And some of us are stuck in that journey. Where are you in your journey? Now, some of you tonight are still in Egypt. You're still in total bondage to your flesh. When your body says, I want something, you'll do it no matter what. Whatever it asks for, whatever it demands, whether it be pleasure or sensual or addiction, you are still in, you're still in Egypt and God's calling you out tonight. He's, he's saying, come out, come out, come all the way out, leave nothing behind, just come and I'll take you into the promised land. I'll give you the opportunity tonight to make that step, to come out of Egypt and move towards what your destiny was always meant to be. You could be in Egypt, you can still be stuck in the wilderness, still wandering around. Oh, there's that mountain again. That sure looks familiar. And you're still dealing with the same kinds of, 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 of faults and failures you've been doing for all of your Christian life. And God wants you to cross the Jordan. God wants to, the Jordan isn't death. The Jordan is being brought into the promised land of living in Ephesians, of being at the right hand of God and having the spiritual pleasures with Him. It's right for here and now for a Christian. He doesn't want you leading a lukewarm, mediocre, half-baked Christian life. He the fruit of the Spirit is peace, joy, love, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, faith. Against these things, there, there's, there's no combating it. That's what God wants you to have. It isn't having some kind of spiritual euphoria or me spreading pixie dust around the sanctuary tonight. It's about you just having the, the normal. That's the normal Christian life from a New Testament economy standpoint. But so many people live subpar, still out in the wilderness, wandering around, hoping God will do something miraculous. Can I give you a, 9 a 411? He already has. He's given you His Holy Spirit. He's given you His Word. He's given you this church and these leaders. He's we're, we're, going, we're on a journey together. We should be having this spiritual adventure together. We're, we're already there. That's why Jesus said, remember the Apostles' Doctrine? You have common salvation. Next time we're together, it'll be slaying the dragon of death. Because some of you are still living in fear of death, fear of sickness, fe fear of financial death. And God wants to slay that dragon in your life. A.W. Tozer said, do you know what the worst sin is? You think, oh, sin would be heroin abuse or uh, child pornography or prostitution or something like that. He said, no. The worst sins don't take place in bars or brothels. The worst sin takes place in churches. Because the only unforgivable sin is rejecting Jesus Christ. All the rest are, can be pale in comparison. This is, this is what it's all The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven because there is no other salvation. There is no other forgiveness. There's no other sacrifice. And so don't commit that sin. 
If you're listening to me right now, it means you haven't. It means your heart is still soft enough. Your ears are still open enough. Your soul is still available to the forgiveness God wants you to give. But the word is vulnerable. You are vulnerable to these spiritual pressures, these terrorists that want to do maximum, inflict maximum damage and because they love company, they want to take you with them into a godless eternity. You see? And people, people think that, um, oh, they, if they had a choice, they would just go to heaven because heaven's some club met in the sky or something. No, heaven's about loving God. And if you hate him here, you can't start to love him there. That's why people will want to be separated from God. Because they, they, they like the, um, the luxuries of heaven, but they don't want the love of heaven. You see, We're going to spend life, our life up there loving him and enjoying unwrapping his love for all eternity. So right now, right here, we're going to pray. I want those watching by web and those listening on, on Life FM, and I want those in this auditorium, those whatever, whenever or whenever you hear this, to be serious about your soul. And don't expose it to the vulnerability of a godless eternity. Lord, we pray tonight. I pray for how many ever are at the crossroads of faith and eternity and annihilation, Lord, without you. We have no other guarantee but this day. And we pray, Lord, we pray that you will um, speak to their hearts, open their lives, help them, Lord, to commit to you and accept and receive the forgiveness you've promised to give. And if, that, if that's you, and God's knocking on the door of your heart, I pray you just let him in right now. Allow God to forgive you. This is what you were born for. This is what you were made for. This is what Jesus came for and died for. Nothing else matters but this moment. So if you want me to pray for you, if you want to make that step, just slip your hand up right now. Anybody, anywhere, God bless you. God's speaking. The Holy Spirit's moving. God bless you. Be certain. Be sure. Don't get this wrong. We can't afford it. It's too important. It's too powerful. It's too permanent. Anybody else before we pray? God bless you. I pray for those watching by way of the internet, those listening right now. You too can make that step. What a, what a glorious night this can be for anybody who will accept Christ right now. Let's all repeat after me. Lord, we believe you sent Jesus. We know we are sinners. You've promised to forgive us. Your blood saves us. We accept you into our hearts. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to, to love you and to live for you all the days of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.